0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Alex Smith. I uh, take care of media and entertainment solutions architecture for Amazon Web Services Asia Pacific. And with me today, I have Harvo Jones, a senior software development engineer for the Amazon CloudFront service. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the design patterns that we learned while building Amazon CloudFront, and how you, in your platforms, on AWS, can use those same techniques, those same approaches, to build highly available services. However, before we get started, I really want to set the context of what a content delivery network is, and who better than Harvo, who has actually been key in building one, to do that. So I'll let him kick off.
1: Great, thanks. Uh, so before diving into lessons we've learned while building CloudFront, it would probably help to define what it is, as, as Alex said. So. CloudFront is a content delivery network, content distribution network, known as a a CDN. And what we do is, essentially, we make the internet faster for the folks who use it. And uh, we do this with what we call points of presence, or CloudFront POPs for short. Each of these POPs is a location into which we've deployed CloudFront infrastructure. And with these POPs, we bring TCP connectivity closer to to, to, uh, internet users, to viewing customers. We reduce latency between them and our sites. And with the uh, with the large caches we deploy to these sites, we're able to reduce overall delivery time. Uh, and we also have persistent connections back to origins and optimized network paths, which allow us to reduce the time to fetch content anew. And so with these POPs, what we're able to do is we service viewing customers on behalf of our publishing customers. Yep, we're all good. So we service viewing customers on behalf of our publishing customers. So what would help is, I think, if we're able to zoom in into one of these CloudFront POPs and get a sense for how it's put together, how it works under the hood. Um, And that will clue us into points of availability risk that our service might face. And that will help us understand the types of lessons that we've learned in in building these CloudFront POPs. So if we zoom into one of these... A CloudFront POP, the first thing that we see is we need network connectivity, right? So we have viewing customers who want to submit requests to our CloudFront POPs. Those requests have to reach us, and then our replies have to reach them. So from each of these CloudFront POPs, we have this connectivity to other networks. And we'll go ahead and send out um, route announcements uh, containing our IP space, the IP space owned by each of these CloudFront points of presence. so those announcements, they tell the routers that we're connected to, this is the, uh, the space owned by this POP. And then that message is propagated outward to all the routers between viewer networks and our own POPs. So a viewer places a packet on the wire destined for an address that, that we own. All routers along the path understand how to route that packet. And as you can see, our availability is completely tied to these network providers. And we'd want to avoid single points of failure. So what we need is we need connections to multiple providers to give us that redundancy. Um, And of course, that also gives us the capacity to meet the the throughput needs of our customers. So if we zoom in a little closer, we can peek a a bit deeper under the hood. We can get a a better sense of how a CloudFront Pop is built. What we see next is let's consider a, a viewing customer who's using some web property say example.com, the first thing their application is going to need to do is translate that domain name into an IP address. So that application will place a, a DNS query onto the wire. And eventually, that query would reach a CloudFront name server, one of our DNS applications. Each of our DNS applications understands which of those many CloudFront POPs is best suited to service that viewing customer. So we'll go ahead and we'll select IP addresses that belong to that POP and we'll hand those back in the DNS reply. That reply makes its way all the way back to that viewer's application. So then that viewer is able to establish a connection with the, uh, the CloudFront cache hosts, the CloudFront POP that own that IP address. So you can imagine these internals being a series of CloudFront cache hosts. And <clears throat> we'll service that request, their HTTP request, um, using the contents of our cache. And if we don't have that content in cache, we'll go ahead and fetch it from the origin anew. Yeah, this clicker isn't working. No, nope, we'll just continue. So it's OK. So we'll fetch it from the origin anew over our persistent connections, and we'll go ahead and seed our cache. So in a, nut- in a, in a nutshell, that's kind of a, a simplistic view of what a CloudFront POP is made of. There you go. So we have we have network connectivity, we have DNS applications. We have HTTP applications. And with that, we run our service. Yep, go for it. All right. So if we have a sense of what CloudFront is, we kind of have a sense for for how it's built under the hood. If we want to get to lessons that we've learned in maintaining availability, we probably want to get an understanding of what availability is and how we monitor it. So availability is essentially your customer's ability to use your service, right? So for CloudFront, that can translate into, let's see, collaboration amongst researchers or uh, successful sales for merchants. Or maybe it's you sitting in your, on your living room sofa at the end of the day streaming your, your favorite TV show. and. So all these use cases, they translate into the successful delivery of lots and lots of bits, just continually delivering bits. So we'll want some sort of monitoring ability that tells us, um, gives us a sense of our success at delivering these bits, so that we know we're meeting our availability goals. So let's see what's available to us. The first thing that we have, the first things that we have are server-side logs. We have logs from uh, uh, our DNS applications, our HTTP applications, and we can mine these logs to to generate statistics from them, such as the request rate that we're serving to certain viewers, or the the throughput that viewers are are, uh, getting from our service, the, the error rate that they're experiencing. So we can collect all these stats together and build up a sense of our availability. We also have canaries that we've built. So you can think of uh, a bird in a cage that you take down into a coal mine, right? You want to make sure it's still alive to tell you that there's, there's no gas leak. So similarly, these canaries that we've built and deployed, they give us an indication uh, into problems with our service. And they, they use our service the way that customers do. Um, DNS queries, HTTP queries, downloading content. They'll tell us when our service uh, is experiencing problems but really, they give us a, a general sense of the reachability of our service, not comprehensive, because we haven't personally deployed these canaries um, amongst all the viewer networks that are actually using CloudFront. So in addition to these canaries that give us a general sense of availability, we also want that comprehensive sense, and we turn it to third-party systems. We turn it to third-party systems that perform HTTP tests globally from the thousands of viewer networks that use us. So... With all, these, with all these stats available to us, we're able to collect them together and provide metrics to our operators that they look at on a, on a daily basis. Um, and we can place alarms on these metrics. Uh, in this case, we see metrics that we can, uh, we can categorize in whichever way we wish, such as by region in this case. And we're seeing a percentage of CloudFront availability, a percentage of requests that were successful from each region from from Asia, Australia, Europe, and so forth. So if we have a sense for what CloudFront is and, and how, how it's built and how we monitor availability, the stage is probably set for us to start getting into the types of uh, things that pose risk to our, to our availability to try to then garner some, some lessons that we've learned. So let's start with an actual interruption to CloudFront availability. So this here is a, a real-world example that we experienced. What we're looking at is a, a code snippet from our DNS application that led to our application uh, crashing. So there's a certain type of DNS query that led to the domain name being passed into this function as null, which led to line 32 attempting to dereference this null pointer, leading to a segfault. So that's an access violation, so our application would crash and come back up. And this certain type of query that was tripping this poisonous code path was continually being sent to a number of our servers. So each time they received it, they would crash again, go down and come back up. So that's an an obvious lack of validation of external input, which led to this, this repeated crashing of our processes. So, if we take this, this experience and try to run a thought experiment across other portions of our service, where else might we be vulnerable to these, uh, to lack of validation that causes application failure, to, this, to, to, cases, to changes in external states that might trip these poisonous code paths? So let's look at our, uh, our, our diagram of the, uh, one of our CloudFront POPs again. The first touch point is the one that we just called out. External queries arriving from resolvers, right? If those queries are formed in such a way that they get past our validation checks, they could trip that poisonous code path again. The next obvious one would be HTTP requests that we receive from our viewers. Similar thing could happen there. Uh, well, of course, there are also the HTTP replies that we receive from Origins. These various touch points where we have to make sure that external input is validated so we don't trip these poisonous code paths caused by software bugs. Well, that's not it. There are also other sources of input. There's the configuration that we ourselves deliver to our applications. We deliver configuration to our DNS applications, telling them, here's a brand new domain name that you should start handing out answers for. We'll also deliver configuration to our HTTP applications, telling them, here's a new origin over here that you should start fetching content from. So perhaps that configuration is corrupted or missing, which could impair our service. Or on the flip side, maybe the ingestion of that configuration also trips a poisonous code path. So we have two more red flags there. Um, Why stop there? What about certain points in time? I don't know, maybe the, the clock ticks over to February 29th, and... Your application wasn't coded to handle leap years. Or maybe we take over to 2017, and your SSL certs across your entire fleet expired in 2016. Another red flag right there. Um, in addition to points in time, what about spans of time? What if you, uh, for some reason, deploy your, your service to every single host in your fleet all at the same time, but with a memory leak? Then you have this this limited resource that's becoming, that's depleting at the same rate across every host. At some point in time, you'll reach that point of depletion. We end up with a lot of red flags. And so we saw this on the CloudFront team and we kind of wanted to get our head around sort of a comprehensive way to, to address this. Um, a way that, that would help us prioritize the highest risks in our service so we can address them in that priority order. What we did, we, we came up with this bucketization of types of risks to our service. Um, these categories kind of work for our service. Maybe they're different for your for, uh, for your service. What we have at the top here are, are software bugs, you know, defects that we introduce ourselves. There's also the case of data corruption, corruption that our system relies on to service our customers, or data that may uh, whose ingestion may trip poisonous code paths. We also have services that we depend upon, right? If those services go down, that, might, that may impair our, our availability. We kind of saw one of those earlier with um, the, the network connectivity that we require from each pop. There are also time bombs, specific points in time or spans of time that can lead to, to an impairment of our availability. And another case is surges in volume, these rapid, unanticipated surges in volume that create hotspots within our system and impair our ability to service other customers. So we want to touch on some of the patterns that we've applied in our learnings to try to, try to mitigate the risks in each of these areas. Um, and before I do that, I wanted to share this with you. So what we're looking at here is the rate of new feature releases from the CloudFront service over the years. These are features that we're, we announced publicly where we've improved the usability of CloudFront. We've added new capabilities that didn't exist before. And the thing is, none of the things that we're talking about today are on these lists. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to keep our service available. And it's not something that always ends up as a, an announcement that we share with customers. So it's, it's great to be able to, to share some of this with you today. So let's get into some of these patterns that that we've collected together, things that you can um, reuse in different ways to to mitigate risks. We'll cover the pattern of food tasting. The idea there is uh, validating changes to state before they're delivered to your production applications. We'll cover the idea of handling flash crowds these unanticipated surges in volume that create hotspots in your system. Um, We'll cover strategies of uh, defense in depth where we take these patterns and we apply them together so that we have the benefit of all of them should should one of these fail. Um, And with defense in depth, we'll cover ideas such as uh, the multiple implementation pattern. where We have two separate implementations of your application which reduces the chance that you have a, the same software defect in both of them. We'll cover ideas of a reducing blast radius by whichever dimension is a, you, you deem important for your service, such as if you want to reduce blast radius by the number of customers affected. Maybe you have certain sets of processes that are all dedicated to one group of customers, another set to the next group of customers, and so forth. So when there's impact from a certain type of change in state or external input, that affects one nth of your fleet instead of all of your fleet. And then we'll also cover uh, the jitter pattern to help us mitigate these time bombs. So starting with flash crowds, we're probably, or sorry, starting with uh, food tasting. Um, most of us are probably familiar with uh, the story of uh, Kings of Yore. They had vile enemies, and those, those enemies wanted to poison them right? So King is sitting in his dining hall, his food's coming down, and he says, wait a minute, I'm not going to eat that just yet. Uh, You, squire, come over here, and you taste this food. I'm going to watch you and make sure you don't keel over. If you don't, I'm going to eat it. Um, I guess that doesn't really work in practice unless all poisons are fast acting all the time. Um, But for us in the software world, it kind of is applicable. Our, Our applications do react quickly to poisonous input. And this idea of food tasting, it can apply to that category of software bugs, where you're trying to prevent these poisonous code paths from being tripped when changes of state are introduced. It can apply to that category of data corruption, such as maybe your food tasting validation has certain expectations that wouldn't be met if that data were corrupted. So here's how we implemented it on the the DNS portion of our service. So initially, we have our viewing customers whose DNS queries are landing on our DNS processes. And those processes are also ingesting changes to state from configuration domains. Um, so these changes to state could be things such as, uh, there's a, uh, here's a brand new domain name that you should start handing out IP addresses for. Or uh, there's a pop that's out of service. I want you to stop handing out IP addresses for that pop over there. You know, various changes in state. And, of course, those changes, the ingestion of those changes, could trip these poisonous code paths. So here's the the idea that we introduced, a new policy that no application has the ability to touch our viewer-facing DNS application, that process, except for this orchestrator. This orchestrator takes a snapshot of all the changes that are being prepared to be delivered to our DNS instance, And instead of feeding that snapshot of changes straight to our DNS application, the viewer-facing one, we feed it to a replica of that application sitting right on the side. We feed it those changes, and then we flood it with queries, thousands and thousands of queries, the same kinds of queries that our customers are using. We'll validate that every query succeeds. They all result in valid IP addresses being handed back. That The application never crashes. If all that passes, then we take that snapshot and we deliver it over to our king DNS instance. So th- there's a bit that goes on in, in getting that to work, but it's, the idea is, is kind of uh, easy to, to communicate when we show that we impl- implemented it basically with with the file system. You have your, your production viewer-facing DNS uh, root directory down there at the bottom, and you have the food taster directory, which has symlinks right into that, that production directory. Uh, those symlinks allow us to take, let's say, routing.data is a new piece of uh, new configuration change that came in. We'll go ahead and replace that one symlink with a new piece of data. And there you have a snapshot of everything that you're about to deliver to your, your customer facing process. So then we flood that uh, food for instance with queries with that snapshot. Once they all validate, we move routing.data on to the, the production directory. And that's how we implemented food tasting on the DNS portion of our service. So if we take the same kind of approach within
0: AWS um, and really try to keep it as straightforward as CloudFront did. So I love the simplicity with which they address quite a difficult problem. And within AWS, if you think about the way that you handle deployments, typically they're very inexpensive. You might take a CloudFormation template and create a similar or like-for-like environment. Or you may deploy over the top. One of the bonuses, of course, of having that like-for-like environment is that the original is idempotent. It's unchanged. However, similar to using a staging environment, there are situations and conditions which cannot be accurately reproduced. While you can in some ways have staging, load testing, etc., there is nothing that is quite the same as production traffic. So let's take the example of doing a deployment over the Top of our existing files. Um, this might be a dependent file. It might be configuration. Or it might be the code itself. And in this case I'm going to assume you're using code deploy But the approach is pretty much the same across anything. So the example file I'm talking about here is a GOIP Database. These are in use in basically every Application you use today. E-commerce for fraud. Video on demand for uh, rights management. All, in almost every application, you will require some sort of GOIP resolution. Now, typically, these files are updated on a weekly basis. Every Tuesday, you'll have a cron job that automatically pulls it down or automatically pushes it up. Within that cron job, you may already have some sort of checks and balance to validate that the file you're receiving is accurate, that it's acceptable for use. A very common approach is just to take an MD5 sum or something and validate that. But as with everything, there's a lot more to consider than Simple, invalid user configuration. There's things that We can't control. Let's say there is a, a, you have 10,000 servers And all of them pull it down at the same time. There's now a problem at the upstream, so half of them get A broken file. While this case will be caught by Something like a checksum validation, what happens if this Is an externally provided file? That externally provided file Has a checksum that matches a zero byte file. In this case, we need to take an extra few steps and take a Similar similar approach to how Amazon CloudFront addresses. So, again, simple is better. It works well on a file system Basis for the Amazon CloudFront team. And assuming that we've Got that code deploy uh, in place, we're using that, what we'll Do is we'll complete a set of in-situ tests very similar to The food taster before we consider an application complete. Now, if you're not familiar with code deploy, it has the concept of an app sec file. This has many hooks, which can be executed at different points during a deployment lifecycle. Here I've identified two different areas that you might want to use. For instance, an after-install. At this section, just do your simple validations. Verify the checksum, make sure the file is syntactically valid. But then, syntactically valid is often not enough. Complete functional tests against the application itself using the the, um, application start hook. This allows you to very easily run tens of thousands of, let's say, DNS queries or GOIP queries very quickly against your application. And then once that's complete, then return. This acts as a very simple but very effective quality gate. And because code deploys supports automatic rollback, you can do this without ever affecting end user traffic. Because if you were in a situation where the end user was, um, where they didn't have a GOIP database or you were missing any key file, you would end up with an availability interruption. So the way we've implemented this validation prevents any of those interruptions and also means that the production traffic can keep going against that production platform.
1: So the next lesson that we'll highlight from from our learnings, building CloudFront, deal with handling flash crowds. So these are those rapid surges in volume that were unanticipated. And they create hotspots within your system and impair your ability to service other customers. So we address these surges in volume with different strategies for load dispersion. Uh, We have a a static strategy that we've learned to use and a dynamic strategy. So let's start with showing the problem. What we see here are metrics from one of our CloudFront POPs. Each of those lines represents the request per second that a CloudFront host is is experiencing, is receiving. So you can see, during this rapid period, this rapid surge in volume, the request rate rises from one up to 15 times its its normal, its steady state level. And that's not occurring across the pop, across all the hosts. It's occurring on a subset of hosts. They would rise, they become unhealthy, and we would move traffic to the next set of healthy hosts. So the original ones would then fall in their request rate, and then the next batch would rise, become unhealthy, and fall again. So we had these rapid rises and falls and fall, uh, in traffic, kind of a cascading failure within the pop. Um, so what was going on here is we had a, we had a customer who was um, running an, an interactive event with a, a television program, which involved a, a, a small period of time where their viewers would vote online. And the popularity was so high that that voting online was, involved this large surge in traffic. And what, what kind of makes it difficult for, for us to manage is that these surges, the onset occurs too quickly for an operator to be able to, to react to. Um, and even if we did have an operator online who was able to, to try to, to mitigate the, these surges in volumes, the frequency of these types of events They occur too frequently for our our operators to to be able to react every time to them. So we needed some way to mitigate this type of uh, situation. And one caveat I should mention is we enjoy reducing our costs so we can pass on savings to our customers. So we hadn't deployed high-end hardware load balancers to help us in this case. Um, So what we turned to There is a static strategy and more of a dynamic strategy that we're using to help us uh, disperse load within these POPs and even between POPs. Uh, The static strategy involves um, configuration that's available to us within our network gear. Uh, Routers have this configuration that allows us uh, to tell it, for for packets that are destined for a given address, I want you to disperse those packets to uh, n number of next hops. Uh, ECMP is what that configuration is called, equal cost multipath. And that dispersion is done in a consistent manner, so that packets for any TCP connection would consistently go to the same next stop. So so we're not severing those connections. So what that configuration does, it it gives us an even dispersal of traffic in the steady state. So it works a large number of times. And in some cases, it works when we have these rapid surges in volume as well. However, there are some customers whose volume is so high that this static dispersal setup, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for all cases. So for those scenarios, we've developed a feedback system where we'll go ahead and we'll take a measurement of the request rate. We'll look at the highest and lowest loaded hosts in our system. If that disparity is large enough, we'll go ahead and we'll react to that disparity by making changes in our system. We might change that fan out to go ahead and shift some traffic toward the lowest loaded hosts. Um, or other changes, uh, and we, we've applied this, this mitigator, this flash crowd mitigation, to even help us with load disparities that occur between sister pops, between sibling pops that are right next to each other, where one is experiencing the load and the other isn't. You take a measurement, and then you go ahead and, and you react to that measurement by making changes that disperse load. So. This has helped us, and what I'll show next is here's the TCP connections per host in a a different uh, pop, which experienced a similar surge in traffic as we saw initially. And initially we saw hosts surging 15 times above their, their steady state level. In this case, hosts surged two times above their steady state level, and they did so in unison which is why that rise is so much lower, because all sibling hosts are helping out to bear the brunt of that load. So, so one thing we're a fan of is, so we've automated that, that feedback system to help us disperse this load, and we're, we're a big fan of ensuring that um, operators understand how to operate uh, systems. We, we give them tools to, to make sure that before we automate something, we really understand how to automate that. So once we've learned uh, how to mitigate these manually, we then automate it based on those learnings. And we're able to take the human out of the picture to sort of react to these surges in volume. Now, for
0: those of you who watched uh, James Hamilton's talk last night, some of you may have picked up on something he said, which is Elastic is the new normal. Bit of a move from cloud is the new normal, as we said a couple of years ago. And undoubtedly the best bit about cloud computing for many people is that elasticity, the auto-scaling, the ability to rise and fall as traffic comes in. And auto-scaling works very, very well. I'm not trying to suggest people don't use it. However, there are situations where you have traffic which is simply very, very large. You go from 15 requests per second and then within a 45-second period you'll hit 130,000 requests per second. And the problem is that dealing with this kind of traffic is very scary, because there's no good way to deal with that kind of thing over a 15, 10, 30 second period, because often 60 seconds can be too long, especially when it comes down to the different use cases for this kind of traffic. So my first approach to deal with this is going to sound very non-technical and very silly, but it it is simply plan ahead. Because if you think about the causes of this kind of traffic, It's quite a lot, because it'll typically come down to things like a TV program or a live event. You're releasing a new game, and all of these are not unexpected. All of these are actually problems with communication as opposed to technology. If you think that TV is scheduled by random, it's not. There's a process which goes in, and there's often just a breakdown between the business units and the IT or engineering teams. So platforms are improperly sized. There's often a case of things like in the game release uh, point of view, or when I release a new feature, there's somebody who makes a business decision to release a new feature and we can integrate, we can understand that. Taking established traffic patterns, they can also be planned around but are often not. Having worked in online TV-related media for the last ten years or so, I can say that very frequently people will forget that there is a channel uh, there is a big program on every saturday night and the infrastructure is not appropriately sized to deal with that so within an aws point of view how can we deal with this well first of all if you are an aws support user you can use aws iem the infrastructure event management system this is great for instance if you were launching something to mars and wanted to make sure that it went perfectly They set up a war room, spend some time with you, load testing, all that kind of configuration piece ahead of time. But then thinking about this from a more automated, a more technical point of view, you can actually schedule those auto-scaling groups. This is something that's often forgotten, but if you have a program that you know will appear every Saturday or you have a particular traffic pattern that you know will grow a little too fast for auto-scaling to catch up, but you know when it will come in, you can schedule around those events. And then finally, and probably most interesting for this, is the idea of integrating auto-scaling with your application, with your business logic. So if you take the idea again of a TV program, why not extend your scheduling application? Add in a parameter that says auto-scaling group. Add in the expected audience size. Add in the expected engagement rate from that. And use this to make a decision to automatically auto-scale your platform before anything happens, and then allow it to scale down naturally over time just through the normal criteria of auto-scaling. Then if we think about the example like the game, if I have a game which is uh, I'm just pushing out a new feature internally, if you log in with Facebook or Snapchat, you have the option then to receive a free item. Well, when you send that notification to a million users, you have a rough idea of how many people are coming in. So create a big red button. Make it such that when you press go on a notification, no notifications go out until your platform has been appropriately scaled to deal with that. Now, these are things that I've been using in my career, but I tend to meet people that say, I can't plan ahead because my traffic could be viral. And well, it's a fair call. There are certain traffic patterns which you don't control. You don't control your traffic routing. You don't control who shares your articles. So. Again, a pretty straightforward person, but something that I always need to call out is cache things. This may sound very obvious, but there's a particular kind of person that I've met in my career. And usually he says, I can't cache things. Or she says, or they say, my website is dynamic. And I love these people because, first of all, it's usually the same person who says they can't plan ahead. And secondly, it gives you a really good opportunity to get into the mind of what goes on in an application. It lets you find out exactly how their traffic works and what comes in. Because these dynamic traffic patterns, these really high surge traffic patterns tend to come in from things like a newspaper or a news site. They come in from voting sites. They come in from almost everything. But when we look at what dynamic is, a, a newspaper will require the ability to remove an article very quickly. However, the front page of a newspaper website, the front page of a news website is not that dynamic. Really, if you think about it, the components that should be dynamic don't all have to be loaded there. Secondly, if you think of a voting site, oh, I couldn't possibly cache. People are voting all of the time. But for me, as an end user, looking at the current vote count, I don't need to worry about whether this is one second or five seconds stale. These are all examples of whether update does not need to be more than once a second. And if you think about caching even for one second, if you take 10,000 requests tens of thousands of requests at the edge, if you apply caching at that point, suddenly you're reducing it to tens or low hundreds of requests per second. This may be enough barrier on a viral article or a similar use case to allow auto-scaling to kick in and you still maintain that high availability for your customers without the concern of having to pre-scale. So the final bit that I wanted to cover as a solution for flash crowds is serving only what you actually have to. If you take an example website, typically you'll have a login button in the top right. And that login button, once you, once you uh, have logged in, will change. It'll change to my account. Let's say this isn't the AWS website. Let's say this is an airline website. It'll be replaced by my name, my frequent flyer number, my status. So the page has to be dynamic, right, because it's just for me. But if I'm browsing content that is shared for everybody, why don't I just serve this section back? Why do I have to serve an entirely fresh object to every single user? So an easy way to approach this is to handle it in client-side JavaScript. Serve back the existing page from a CDN, from a cache within your platform, or even from S3. And then use client-side JavaScript to just pull in that component. This is an overlooked design pattern, but it can save you because the page generation time for that news article can be massively, massively reduced when you're sharing the same article between everyone. And secondly, CloudFront's cache keys are actually affected by user configuration. If you configure CloudFront to whitelist a header or whitelist a cookie, that will create a different cache key for that behavior. This means you can use this within your application. If you think of the situation where you have, for instance, WordPress. WordPress has the WP session cookie. Now, if you've got a particularly viral blog, it's going live, and everybody's very excited, they're likely to have a very high bounce rate after they've hit that first page. When they hit it for the first time, however, they don't have a cookie. So why not vary upon that cookie? And then all of your fresh users, people who have never visited before get that same page back from the CDN. However, other users, people who have logged in, have commented, have edited, they actually have the flexibility to maintain that dynamicism. This is an example of a defense in depth.
1: All right. So the next, um, the next learning that we can pull from our experience building CloudFront is applying defense in depth, where we take some of these strategies and we apply them together in unison so that we have the benefit from all of them, should should one of them fail. And there there are multiple strategies that you can layer together. You can do things such as caching the content that you depend upon from external services so that you have it available to you should those services uh, become unavailable, uh, as Alex mentioned. There's also the idea of uh, multiple implementation. So running different implementations of your application simultaneously. That reduces the likelihood you're going to have the same software defect in both of them. And of course, uh, as I mentioned before, the idea of reducing blast radius using sharding. So reducing that blast radius based on whichever dimension you deem appropriate for your service. So going back to the potential causes for failure when we ran that thought experiment over the CloudFront system, there were many touch points, many external touch points, which uh, led to the possibility of uh, lack of validation tripping poisonous code paths. And so we wanted to sort of come up with a way to to address these in general. How can we address application failure in general? One way the the CloudFront team had thought about was coming up with ideas just to avoid crashing. Can we prevent our applications from ever crashing in production? And there are some ideas there, such as um, using comprehensive test coverage really making sure that that our unit tests are covering as much as we think is possible, Um, adopting fuzz testing to to throw random data at our applications to to maybe catch cases that our developers hadn't thought of, or really improving our our static code analysis so that we can detect potential causes, uh, uh, potential seg faults by analyzing the code. There's also ideas of just simplifying our systems. Um, That might make it... uh, easier for developers to keep those systems in their heads so that they're less, less likely to produce defects? All these are, are good ideas, but they're not foolproof, right? So defects can still make their way to production. So, so we then ask the question a little bit differently. Uh, instead of trying to avoid crashing, are there ways that we can survive crashing, keep our, our service up and running even when these crashing scenarios are introduced into production? So then we we started a a thought exercise around this area. Uh, The idea of reducing blast radius. So when when one of these problems does occur, you're affecting a a, a subset of your service instead of the entire service. So ideas under reducing blast radius, there are ideas such as sharding customers to separate processes, or it might be sharding by geography or whichever dimension you you deem important. So if there's a, a poisonous query introduced by the data associated with one of those customers, it'll affect the group of processes that are servicing that group of customers. A separate group of processes for your next group, separate processes, and so forth. That'll help us reduce that blast radius to one nth of our fleet. Um, the idea of recovering quickly, uh, thinking back to the uh, the impact that we had in our DNS application when it would crash and come back up each time it received that poisonous query. If, uh, if that ability to to restart was shortened to a small time window, we would reduce sort of extended outages into a small slice of time. So that's another way to reduce blast radius. Uh, and there's also the idea of multiple implementations that I mentioned before. Um, this idea is common in the, in the airline industry with, with flight control software. I was actually um, speaking with a, a pilot on my way over here uh, about this, this very strategy. And he described to me the pilot and co-pilot have different sets of instruments that they use to measure measure the same things. Um, ground speed, airspeed, altitude, that sort of thing. Different instruments, different sets of data provided to each person. And they're constantly cross-referencing each other. Um, and then he also described to me the, uh, there, are, there are disagreements at times between their two sets of instruments, and they have a, a third set that they can then refer to, to sort of break ties between those uh, when there are disagreements. Um, And then another idea I also like is the idea of rejecting input that previously made you crash. Uh, Thinking back to our application, our DNS application, let's imagine it had crashed that very first time, come back up, and that poisonous query is received again. If we had implemented this last idea, our application would say, "I, I, I, I recognize you, you just made me crash, so I'm going to ignore you. And I'm going to go continue on servicing the rest of my, my queries. So there are a few ideas here. So one thing that we implemented from this list, we, we took the, the idea of multiple implementations. We, we kind of uh, combined that a bit with sharding to reduce blast radius. And we applied this to the DNS portion of our service. We asked ourselves, should, should the second implementation should it be a, a fallback system, where it's, it's waiting on the side, it's waiting, observing our, our customer-facing application, and observing, waiting for it to fail. And should it fail, it would step in and then start servicing customers. That was one idea. But we decided we wanted to know, if I go back, we decided we wanted to know that it always works. Um, in other words, we didn't want to encounter the situation where the ability to step in line and service customers was broken and we didn't know it. Uh, Then we also asked ourselves, okay, should this second implementation, should it run in unison with our original implementation? Maybe run in front of it or run behind it or on the same server? We kind of leaned away from this idea because we we didn't want to trade one point of failure for another if the ability to proxy was impaired or if the hosts were impaired in some way. So we kind of separated our fleet into two separate halves called them Stripes. Okay. So we have Stripes. So 34 pops on one Stripe, running the original implementation of our DNS application, 34 pops on the second Stripe, Um, running the second implementation, wrote that one in Go. Um, Each of these are servicing our, our DNS queries. And you can imagine if that first Stripe were to experience that poisonous code path again, its ability to respond to DNS queries is impaired, we still have that second stripe up and running, which continues to service our customers. So here's, uh, we see that it's the multiple implementation pattern with with a flavor of uh, separating these out to try to reduce blast radius. So we kind of sprinkled a little bit uh, of that in there as well. So to to give you more of a sense of how we sort of uh, layer these together, I wanted to Cover Another experience, um, another incident we experienced on the CloudFront side, those DNS applications, those, those uh, configuration Daemons that I mentioned that are producing input to give uh, to Our processes, we encountered a scenario where these daemons Were producing a value. Uh, they wanted to absolutify it. They were calling math.abs. The result was coming out as Negative, and so they would throw an exception over this. So we had these configuration daemons across our fleet that were, that were crashing in a loop. And that itself is, is kind, of a, kind of a good thing because they were preventing this poisonous input from progressing forward toward our customer-facing applications. But So the learning from me is it's, it's kind of expected that math.abs will return a negative number for one specific number, uh, the, the negative-most number, in a 32-bit int. That's expected because of the way two's complement works. You absolutify value by, by flipping all the bits and then adding 1, so the number rolls back around to, to where it started. So our actually ability to service customers in, in the DNS portion of our service, it was protected because we had coded those configuration daemons defensively to, to crash when they encountered this poisonous input. But we wanted to look a little deeper to see what what could have happened if we had missed that defensive portion of the coding. We then looked at the uh, the actual DNS implementation that would have ingested this poisonous input, and we saw that that side was coded defensively as well to ignore this poisonous input. So if it had been uh, uh, given uh, that input, it would have continued on servicing customers without, uh, uh, without failing. So, we had good coding practices on both sides. What if both of those were missed? We also had our food taster in the middle. Our food taster, which is running there, we're flooding it with queries. That would have crashed if we had missed the validation on both sides. It would have crashed when it had ingested this poisonous input. So, we would have stopped it there. And then we thought, well, what if we had missed it at the food taster level? We also had that second implementation, which would have reduced the chance that we had the same software defect on both sides. And that second implementation would have kept serving customers should that first stripe have failed. So so it kind of looks like we had a belt, we had suspenders, we had safety pins, and we had duct tape all holding up our pants during this event. And our availability stayed up during this period.
0: So just thinking about the same kind of idea of, of striping applications to maintain that availability Within Amazon CloudFront, one of the restrictions of building a network which handles just that much traffic, raw bits, is it's very difficult to use a load balancer with Layer 7 awareness. However, in AWS, you can. We can use a a full TCP or HTTP load balancer. And what this enables us to do is to have multiple implementations, multiple back-end types across a fleet of servers behind a single ELB. And at the risk of saying microservices and trying to make myself sound trendy, um, this is very easy to implement by using a microservices approach and re-implementing a very specific portion. Because for you to re-implement your entire application in a different language to avoid the problems with one language is very difficult and probably not the right choice for most companies. However, choosing a particularly high-risk service and just re-implementing that, as we did with the DNS piece, is much easier. So the example I thought of first was two-factor authentication, because it's incredibly hard to get into your house when you've locked your keys inside. It's incredibly hard to debug your broken two-factor auth if you can't log in in the first place. These are pretty typical. Uh, they're usually an HTTP or similar API in front of some backend. So it's quite, a, it's reasonably few lines of code. You don't tend to put much business logic in here. So the implementation is quite straightforward. And for us, within AWS, you can just use the elastic load balancer, attach multiple auto-scaling groups there, each of which have an AMI or an application deployed with a different language. Those can be then balanced, just uh, straight round-robin distribution. Or you could even use a new application load balancer and then have path-based routing to give you the access to either the main or either target group behind there. So, it's a pretty simple approach. Again, I'm trying to keep things straightforward in the approach, but it does give you that flexibility that even when everything's on fire, you can still get to your files. So, finally, we're going to talk about the idea of jittering different configuration items on your platform to avoid time bombs. And this really comes down to one of two things either the absolute point in time. This happens because it's turned to February 29th, or it happens. Through bugs introduced through things like memory leaks. Now, one of the examples that I'm going to pick up and talk through is the problem with a homogeneous platform. Now, a homogeneous platform is great. It basically means that everything is derived from the same template, the same AMI. It, does, it means you don't have to worry about a version of Linux over here, a version of Solaris over here, another version of Linux here, and how you play with a nice set of tools across all of those. But there is a problem with having that homogeneous platform. Here I've got three servers. The uh, green box here represents the Root file system of those servers. Now, in my theoretical example, I am a photo, uh, photo processing, photo sharing website. So in my day-to-day operation, I'll have things coming in. For instance, I'll have configuration, uh, configuration updates coming in. These are typically small. They'll be cycled. I'll only keep the last couple. But actually, you know what? Last week, uh, we had some crashing issues in prod. So now we've got a bunch of binary patches running on those as well. I haven't cleaned them out yet, but well, you can see it's only half full. My disk utilization, as represented by the yellow, is only 50%. And you know what? I'm monitoring absolute fill, so this is fine. But then at some point, one of my users decides to digitize their entire photo collection. And I get petabytes of pictures of cats come in. And this all happens within a very, very, very short period. So now all of my servers all break at the same time because, well, I've got my load balancing in place, so it gets distributed equally across them. Now, how did we deal with this traditionally? Well, you had instance-level monitoring. Each of your servers, each of your zones, each of anything would have a monitor. In the event of my disk exceeding 80%, it would alarm. However, as I've just shown, this is like a flash crowd. This is a rate of fill that is unexpectedly high. But you know, in the olden days, instance-level alerts—I'd get paged at 2 a.m. I'd be—I'd respond, and you know what? Eventually, I'd look at it and think, "I'm going to implement fill rate monitoring as well." But fill rate monitoring wouldn't help because remember this graph—the rate of fill here would be so incredible that even if I received an alert, it wouldn't make a difference. So if I responded, it's automated. Some things I could do would be recycle my instances. You know, at the the point one becomes unhealthy, shut it down and run it up again. But it's an unnecessary cost. It may provide an interruption to availability. It's not the right choice. Secondly, I could have an automated cleanup that just says, well, this file system is getting too full, so I'll, I'll clean it out. But if my rate of change is too high, this won't work. And if it can't be done programmatically quick enough, I certainly can't do it. So this is an example used by many, many things, but CloudFront also take this approach, which is jittering that file system, identifying the components which may fill, and then providing a jitter of variance across those. This almost acts like a canary, an early warning sign, because when your traffic does come in, when you see that load come in, one node, a few nodes, a percentage of your fleet. Becomes impaired first and this gives you the ability to respond. It gives you that flexibility to respond. Now, the important part of this is knowing your application And knowing where your files are actually going to be written. Very, very commonly you will write temporary files to var run Or var temp or somewhere like that. Now, on the amazon linux ami, uh, this is stored on the root file system. In the ubuntu ami, for instance, it uses tempfs. Now, jittering or changing either of those within a single autoscaling group is actually quite tricky because you can't provide that kind of configuration at the auto-scaling group level to be varied. So this comes back again to knowing your application and knowing how it fits together. Take the photo example. I will consciously separate out my uploads into a separate directory, not part of the existing file system hierarchy. And then I will separate that onto a separate volume, which has that jittering. I had some code which I did not get through legal review, so it will be on SlideShare later. Um, But it's effectively 80 lines of bash to write something that takes an EBS volume, uh, mounts it, sorry, attaches it, mounts it, um, creates a file system, and then as you're actually creating the EBS volume in the first place, apply that jitter. It's incredibly straightforward. And in the testing I did, it adds no more than about 10 seconds to your system init time. But it does protect you from these problems. So thinking about that, that's where one resource has expired, uh, sorry, has filled over time or in response to something. But what else is there within your platform? Well, SSL certs are a good example. It's incredibly tempting to use a star.cert and apply it to everything. But unless you have auto renewals in place, you can get caught out. Just a quick shout out, ACM will help with that. Um, But then think about domain name registrations. What if your entire platform runs with Glue or with NS records hosted on the same domain? If you look at Route 53, you may notice that your NS records are actually sharded. They're separated across multiple TLDs and multiple domains. So in the event of any problem with one TLD, any TLD being blacklisted by a country, you still have those fallbacks. Another thought is from a deployment schedule point of view. If you look inside your application and think about the deployment schedules, if everything comes online at exactly the same time, what it means is that if you have a memory leak, all of your instances will fail at roughly the same time. So you may want to apply a small offset, a small jitter in there as well. But that's not it. Have a look at your platforms. Have a look at the way that your application works. And think about where you can introduce small amounts of variance in order to improve your availability.
1: Okay? You want to take this
0: quick? I guess I'm going to sort through this. All Brilliant. Right. Um, so, just to wrap this up, we've talked about many different areas where your availability, where your availability can be affected. If we look at the pentagon of sadness, we, I hope we've addressed each of, the concert, each of the corners and how you might look at that from your application. If you look at each of the green sections here, there's a little bit of a design pattern that you can think of how you apply that from both the AWS Amazon CloudFront point of view, but also within your application. But of course, this isn't it. Spend some time afterwards and just look at your application and work out where your particular risks are. And if it comes to it, invent new design patterns. With regards to the lessons learned today, there's a couple that I just want to go over again. First of all, think about that food tasting. You can't necessarily rely on a syntax validation or validation within the production-facing application. Take a step back and think, where can I validate with real traffic before I go to prod? Where can I do that food-tasting approach? Secondly, flash crowds, if you can avoid scaling for the peak, please do so. But think about integrations with auto-scaling. Look at your business applications and where you can fit those two together, do so. I'm a huge, huge fan of caching all over the place. So cache even for a second, because that reduction in origin load is huge. And also think about what you actually have to serve back dynamically. Use selective serving, use the uh, approach using CloudFront cache keys, or even just client side JavaScript. And use all of these approaches to have this defense in depth. For instance, things like implementation sharding may may save you in the event of a production outage. But also look at where in that idea from CloudFront where they Have the duct tape and so on and so forth, where you might be Able to layer those defenses. And finally, while I don't encourage you to randomize Absolutely everything on your platform, I would encourage you To look at where you do have that homogeneous approach Within your platform and try to layer it. Try to make sure you've got that little bit of protection. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming today. I really appreciate it. And we'd love to hear about your design patterns that you've thought of as well. But otherwise, thank you very much, and I will see you again.